You know, during this hour, I was thinking to myself how good God is to us week after week when we come here and are so wonderfully fed in worship. Truly, we're a blessed congregation. I hope you feel that way too. And then we're blessed to be able to hear God's word, study a prophet like Jeremiah, a fellow I didn't really know too well before we started this series. But he has so much to say to us, and I hope that we'll have ears to hear this morning. Some time ago, my wife and I were in a restaurant, and I looked at a couple just next to us, and I said, you know, that couple is not married. And the reason I knew it was that uh, there they were sitting. She was on the edge of her seat, literally glued on every word that uh, this man was <laughs> saying, kind of, um, you know, holding hands across the table, perfect eye contact, oblivious to everything that was happening around them, a delicious dinner in front of them, and that seemed to be kind of incidental. And I looked under the table, and yeah, the feet were kind of interlocked, and it was great. Then I, I looked the other way, and I said, uh, there's a guy, his face is in the newspaper. The woman was looking in her soup, and they weren't talking at all. They were just sitting. And I said, that couple's married. And the rings proved it. And as I thought on that scenario, scenario you know, it, it kind of reminded me of this text, believe it or not. Um, what happened, what happened, should I ask, to couples after we get married? Uh, why does marriage destroy the romance so often? Why do we take each other so for granted and that we lose what actually brought us together in the first place? And you know, that same thing is applicable to our relationship with God. In our text, Jeremiah accuses Judah of having lost their first love for God. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. But then when God delivered the Jews from bondage in Egypt, he chose Israel by the title, my bride. And then one can feel almost the agony in his heart as Jeremiah articulates for God, what fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. It's almost like a husband or a wife wondering after years of marriage and the love sort of died, what did I do wrong? Where did I fail you? That's what God sometimes asks. So I want to study this message today, warning us of a very important truth for modern Americans. And that is the danger of loving what God gives more than loving the God who gave it to us. And as a result, losing our passion for him. So Jeremiah first reminds us of this common sin. It's a sin. Worshiping God's gifts rather than worshiping God. He says there in the 13th verse, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns broken cisterns that can't hold water. What an indictment. If you know the Old Testament story, you know how God lavished blessings on this group of slaves that he delivered from Egypt. He gave them everything they could possibly want. And in the promised land, their response was to become increasingly self-centered. They rejected their identity as God's special people, rejected the idea that they had a mission in the world, and they just kind of fell in love with pleasure. And pretty soon, God was excluded. That scenario sounds very painfully familiar to the modern church. See, G.K. Chesterton wisely stated, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. That's a very insightful statement in terms of America today. 
America has all kinds of lesser gods. Multitudes will gather at a rock concert, giving almost divine homage to rock stars, as we learned even in the last few months when one of them died. Consider the salaries we pay to athletes and entertainers to distract us and fill our emptiness. Think about our devotion to sport events that easily take precedence over worshiping God. I am absolutely a Niner fanatic, and I'm wondering when it comes to you, how many times have you ever missed worship because there was a football game? Or even interestingly, how many of you tape the 49er game when it's on at 10 o'clock Sunday so you can hardly wait to get home and you don't want anybody to tell you how that game ended so you can watch the tape? And then I'll ask a further question, have you ever taped a worship service when you missed it so that you can come back and find out what you missed. A film last summer cost $175 million to entertain us for an hour and a half in a world of need. Magazine racks advertise our gods, People Magazine, Money Magazine, magazines devoted to physical fitness, bicycling, home decoration, beauty. And then think about the homage we pay to bonuses and stock options and the perks that require this incredible commitment to the point where one told me you almost have to lay your life on the altar of the company to get these things. Now, Jeremiah would not say, God would not say, that any of these things we love and enjoy are wrong. The issue is priority. The sin comes when we start loving the gift and forget the giver, and we give the devotion and the passion to the gift and we forget God and leave him out, the giver. That's when we get into trouble. Jeremiah exposes the reality that anything less than the living God is a broken cistern. It isn't worth that kind of commitment. At least when it comes to feeding our souls. And that's the real issue here. As one writer states, as a society, we're only beginning to understand the price we have paid in our quest for individualism and accumulation of goods and capital. Listen, the internal has been sacrificed to the external, and the word soul, used by many to describe our inner core, is empty. That's a modern problem today in the hearts of many. We're empty inside. That's why we flock to sporting events, not for enjoyment, but almost with a passion, because we want something, anything to fill that emptiness. A woman introduced her good-looking friend to the guy serving us coffee at a shop we frequented last summer. I, I overheard the conversation. She said, this is my niece visiting from Virginia. She's single, and, and she was a beautiful woman. So the fellow behind the counter kind of said, well, great, with a smile and a look of expectation. But then the woman added, she's looking for somebody rich. You aren't rich, so you're out of the running. Now, now there's humor in that comment. But, you know, looking behind the comment, there was a great truth in terms of the value shift that's going on in America today. Idolatry totally distorts our value systems to the point that many really do value what a person has rather than what they are when it comes to marriage. That's about as distorted as you can get. An idol, by definition, is anything to which we give ultimate value and worship in the place of God. Frederick Buechner says, idolatry is the practice of ascribing absolute value to things of relative worth. Now, you know, idolatry doesn't really capture our souls overnight. And it's probably one of those things that if you came to church and saw the title, you'd say, I don't worship idols, because we think of idols kind of in a medieval concept of idols, wooden things you carve and 
fall down before. But you know, like ancient Israel, God has blessed our congregation. When you think about it and compare us with the rest of the world, we're probably among the most blessed people on earth in history. And often our response has been to become so involved in the gifts God has given us, the houses, the hobbies, the travel, the business, the accumulation of more, that we simply give more devotion to things than we give to God. That's our sin. And it's as modern as today. That's idolatry. We lose our sense of gratitude and indebtedness to God, thus losing our motivation for worship. You know, when we come here at 8 o'clock in the morning trying to stretch and wake up, rather than almost having to be pushed into worship, when we look back on a week where God has lavished on us, we ought to be here just hardly waiting to give praise and gratitude to God, saying, God, you're incredible. Why so much to me? I want to offer you my worship. I received a letter from a woman who writes me every year on the anniversary of her cancer operation. And she's always giving thanks to God for another year of health, and she always includes a thank offering. You know, I like her spirit. So many of us forget to be grateful. We forget the giver. We take our health, we take our things for granted and don't realize that everything we have today, this moment is from God and we ought to be here just giving Him the glory. That's all He wants. He doesn't want us to throw away the gifts he's given us. He just wants us to acknowledge him. But you know, weekends come and we find so many other things that seem more important than worship. And we begin to miss worship. And our souls then get hungry, but we don't know our souls are hungry. And we get restless and we get increasingly empty. And we get more frantic trying to fill that hole in us which only God can fill but which gets squeezed out when we don't make time for God and we get involved in the things God gives. I find it amazing how we will settle for so little from our lesser gods when the living God seeks to give us so much more. Think with me about the difference between the living God and idols, as Isaiah and Jeremiah so beautifully paint. An idol demands everything and gives nothing. God gives of himself even his life on the cross. That's the God we worship today as you heard the choir sing. There's no breath, no life in idols. They're unresponsive to human cries. Try turning to your automobile, your home, or your hobby when your hearts are broken. They don't bring comfort. But God is alive and responsive and loving. Idols can't give love. They only receive it. Idols can't provide the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. They take away contentment because they're insatiable. No matter how much we give to idols, they always demand more to get the same kind of rush. The, the abiding difference between God and, and lesser gods is that the idols of this world will perish. The living God created the heavens and the earth. He's everlasting, says Jeremiah. He cannot perish. But when we turn to idols for soul food, their silence and immobility will be our judgment. It's really important that we, we, we realize what God is doing here. You know, he's not beating us up. He's just trying to say, you know, I love you people so much. Look what I've given you. I'm trying to give you wisdom of how to live with your blessings without losing me. Because if you lose me, you lose everything. This is not a rebuke sermon, it's a love sermon. But there is a third truth from Jeremiah, and namely that that's who give themselves to lesser gods 
will ultimately face the judgment of the living God, and that's what God's trying to prevent us from experiencing. Judgment takes so many forms, sometimes we don't even recognize it. For example, lesser gods fail to give us what they promise. One elder was talking about all the stuff he has in his attic, stuff that should be cleared away or shared with someone who can use it. I remember weeks ago, Frank preached about stuff we collect. The success of the self-storage unit business is testimony to how much stuff we possess. Now think about it. Many of you have laid down your life so you can go and buy stuff. After a while, it loses its luster, so you store it. Uh, some of the best fights Meta and I ever have, I'm a, I, she's a collector and I'm a distributor. I just don't like clutter around. But I really thought, and this isn't to support my position because she's not here, but you know, uh, this elder was saying, this stuff in my attic ought to be, I ought to get rid of it and give it to somebody who can use it. But the real point is, and the first judgment is, that many of us are devoting ourselves so much to getting stuff and it fades and in the process we neglect God. That's judgment. Our portfolios are a form of storage many worship rather than share. I, I read recently about a woman in Florida who lived like a bag lady in absolute poverty, begging from her neighbors. One day she was found dead in her apartment, apparently of malnutrition. Upon investigation, two keys to a bank deposit box were found containing $2 million in cash and stocks. Her money was given to distant relatives who hardly even knew her. You see, sometimes lesser gods get such a hold on our souls, we can't even use the stuff we're collecting. We just like to hoard it and look at it. And we forget that it was meant to be shared. This woman had $2 million and she died in poverty. What a judgment when we worship things and security and money more than God. We can't then even enjoy our money because we think everybody's trying to spend it or take it away from us. We were discussing the Super Bowl in our men's Bible study. John Coma, who has a 49er bowl ring, having played with the 49ers, uh, stood up that day and pointed, uh, held up the ring and pointed the hole in it. He said, this ring has a hole, and my point is, the glory fades. Another judgment is that idols seduce us into chasing them, but when we capture them, they don't produce what they promised. I can't even recall other Super Bowls many years ago. And yet I would have sold my soul to be at one, practically. Amazing. They don't, idols don't give what they promise. The glory fades. Crowded calendars is another judgment for worshiping lesser gods. Gods require time. One elder suggested that this year we don't add to our calendars, but if we're going to take another step in our spiritual journey, we need to subtract from our calendars and make room for the spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible study in small groups. How many times have you heard that? Saturday morning I got encouraged. A high school teacher stood up and told me, you know, Walt, I heard you talking about reading the Bible for 10 years in here, but I just haven't done it. Well, the last month I've started getting up early and reading my Bible in the morning for at least 10 minutes, and it's making a huge difference in my life. So it kind of gives me hope when I keep on preaching about, you know, getting in a prayer group, reading your Bible, getting in a small group that... Maybe we'll do it. The seed will catch one of these days. The virus will infect you because we have to subtract from our calendars in order to make room to cultivate our relationship with God. And until we do that, to some degree, we're idolaters and we're going to pay the consequences. Again, that's not judgment. That's God seeking to love us. 
As we get deeper here, another form of judgment for giving ourselves to lesser gods is that we tend to become like them. And this is where it gets a little scary. We become like them in that we get lifeless, hard, self-centered. In fact, the point is, every day we're either growing to become more like Jesus or we're becoming more like our gods. We're becoming increasingly giving and loving or increasingly selfish and introverted. It's terrible to become like our lesser gods. In fact, the psalmist describes them. Listen to what a lesser god is like. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but they don't speak, eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but can't hear, nor is there any breath in them. And those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. I preach this sermon so that none of us will become like lesser gods. Do you know anyone so caught up in themselves they don't hear, see, or respond anymore to human need? Do you know people so callous that the pain in the world has only driven them more and more into their sort of insulated life? Such people have a growing lack of compassion. They avoid pain. They don't want to get involved. They become like their idols, lifeless. And there's not a worse thing that can happen to a human being. And we see it happening by the millions out in our society today where people just don't care anymore. But then there's an ultimate judgment of worshiping lesser gods. And that is that we get separated from the living God. One definition of hell is, is total separation from God. C.S. Lewis, in his great divorce, I mentioned that book, uh, it describes people who have a chance to leave hell, come to heaven, they visit for the day, and every one, of them, every one of them decide to go back to hell. They don't want to be there. You see, this process of separation from God begins not after we die. It begins right now based on decisions and priorities that we are setting. Separation from God happens in many subtle ways. Oh, we become addicted to entertainment, for example. And we come to worship services expecting to be entertained rather than coming to give God our worship, praise and gratitude. And if we don't like the entertainment, it's like a good or a bad play, thumbs up or thumbs down. If it's thumbs down, we don't come anymore. And then we gradually substitute other things for worship. Go out on any Sunday morning, and happily you're not out looking, but you can go out any Sunday morning, you'll find people bicycling, playing tennis, jogging, going out for breakfast, much thought for their bodies, none for their souls, and what's the point? Increasingly, week after week, they're getting away from the living God, they're living just for this world, forgetting their mortality. Jeremiah warns that straying from God carries its own punishment. Your own wickedness will correct you. The ultimate judgment for idolatry is that we get so far from God, we can't hear his warnings anymore. We write off sin as a sickness of the church. We fall more in love with that which is not God. We learn to live as if God doesn't exist. And you know, folks, the scary thing is that that process goes right into eternity. I've struggled all my life. How can a loving God send anyone to hell? And I firmly believe he does not. I believe that we make decisions right now saying, God, I really don't want to be with you. We exclude him now and we'll go into eternity with our fists clenched. No, I don't want to be with you. God's arms are always open. The point is, lesser gods are so addictive and so powerful, they can get us to forsake the living God so we don't even want to be with him forever. That's dangerous. So in summary, one fact about human beings is that we were created to worship the living God, says Jeremiah. If we stray from God, we do not lose our need for worship, 
but we will fill that need with lesser things that ultimately cannot satisfy the deepest cries of our hearts. No wonder God gave this as his first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Sometimes one of the great demonstrations of God's love is when he shatters our trust in lesser gods. Disease, tragedy, a broken relationship, death can be used to explode the fallacy of trusting false gods. It's always painful, and maybe you're going through that right now. But it's God's way of getting you back to himself, saving you before it's too late. So as we close, I want to ask, if someone were observing your life like I observed the couples in this restaurant, would they see you as one passionately devoted to Jesus that they couldn't even be around you with also, without also knowing that you're related to Jesus? Or would they see you just as another person who attends church when convenient? Our text says our decisions about the God or gods we worship are important. Today, the choices we're making will follow us in eter into eternity. I hope this message will be a wake-up call for all of us to look at our priorities and rearrange them, to give a new faithfulness in attending worship because that's where we get aligned with God so we won't be seduced by all these gods around us. And you know and I know the pressure out there is incredible. So remember the words of that old hymn, take time to be holy, speak oft with thy Lord, abide in him always and feed on his word. Take time to be holy. The world rushes on, and it really does. I want you just to take a few moments, perhaps think through what Jeremiah has told us, do some introspection of your own heart, perhaps some confession, repentance, getting things straightened out in terms of priorities. I think that would be a very fitting thing to take just a minute or so at the close of this service to do, and then next week make some real behavior changes. Let's bow in silent prayer.